I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... You kind of, we would say, need a new professional. Someone who is really independent, not hired by an insurance company, not hired by government or a hospital, but who is independent and can really be trusted by the family. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm here in the studio with our producer, Tracy Madigan, and we welcome in Mai Pham. Mai is the founder and CEO of the Institute for Exceptional Care. What do they really do? Well, you'll find out, of course, during our conversation. But guess what? There are gaps in health care. Spoiler alert, those gaps can be extraordinarily damaging to a family, to a community, and economically very, very expensive. So the IEC is about bridging those gaps with people that follow a condition, intellectual disabilities, finding ways to manage the patient, the family, and their journey through life. She is on top of things, and this is a really, really motivational conversation. I know you'll enjoy it. Mai, welcome to the studio. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. The obvious first question is, what does the Institute for Exceptional Care provide? So we are a nonprofit that is focused on making healthcare safe and inclusive for people with intellectual and or developmental disabilities, conditions like Down syndrome, autism, cerebral palsy, fetal alcohol syndrome. And where was there, uh, what was the moment in your personal life or your career as an MD where you went, this is necessary, we, somebody should be doing this? You know, it was a, a very... A gradually evolving woke moment for me. My second child, Alexander, is autistic. And we had gotten a late diagnosis for him when he was in third or fourth grade. But we didn't really experience his first crisis until he was in high school. And I think somewhere in between there, we became a little passive and complacent. So we had to really rally the troops when he had um, that high school crisis, which just involved a lot of anxiety and challenges with schoolwork really for uh, that through this kid for a loop because he's brilliant. Um, and in the coming out of that, when we were able to catch a breath, I just asked myself, what happened here? You know, how, how did we fail him? How did the system fail us? And that led to a lot of questioning and exploratory conversations with anyone who would talk to me about it, which is how I came to you know, my understanding of why uh, things happen the way they did for our family. And as I thought about it, I could only imagine what other families with fewer resources, fewer connections go through all the time. And, uh, and then I realized, wow, that, that actually makes me pretty oblivious and, um, and typical <laughs> of general health care leaders. And mm-hmm. that's when I decided that uh, there was a need for a new organization to tackle some of these problems. How, how typical is a late diagnosis of autism? Was your son, was Alexander uh, on, a, on a typical bell curve of experience or was he diagnosed late for reasons that you were uh, learning more about and trying to address now? So I think that that changes swiftly over time. I think when Alexander was a toddler, late diagnoses were probably a little more common than they are now. But we also know of adults who are diagnosed as adults 
So, uh, so there's quite the range, unfortunately. The need for exceptional care that you suggested, we talked about earlier just a moment ago, were there gaps that physicians generate because they don't share information? What, where, where do the gaps exist or are they endemic to a system and you're changing how physician A communicates with physician B when the patient is passed along? I know it's a stupid open-ended question, but where, where are those gaps that, that yeah, you're no, trying to it's, address? It's a great question because it can get abstract and overwhelming pretty quickly, but we really pinpoint it to several issues. One is that the vast majority of clinicians, not just doctors, but nurses, dentists, you know, medical assistants, are not trained about mm-hmm. IDD. Mm-hmm. The average medical student gets 11 minutes of exposure. Right. For a population that is somewhere between 10 and 16 million people, that's just outrageous. Mm-hmm. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that people have misconceptions of this population. So there is not only bias and outdated assumptions, for example, that they have shortened lifespans and they never live to be adults, right? When in fact they spend most of their lives as adults. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are misconceptions. It's also the fact that because they are so poorly documented in healthcare data, like in your doctor's records or in insurance claims, it means everybody thinks this is a small problem. And when it comes to the business of healthcare, that really affects how much someone who's trying to offer health services gets paid for it and how much of the money in the system goes to this population. And, well, and then at what you say, Mark, it, it is absolutely the case that you kind of need a PhD in social work to navigate all the services that a, a family might need, and you shouldn't have to do that. Well, in this new world of, not that new, but big data, AI, et cetera, some brag, oh, but all the stuff we'll need will be able to be found by AI programs and there'll be more seamless experience as a citizen with stuff like this. It sounds like in medical care that's probably not happening today and maybe will never happen, that there's a seamless access to resources to help the challenge that a family or an individual is going through and a continuation of that treatment throughout their life. That, that, those gaps are going to survive AI probably, right? Yeah, I think that's not a problem for AI. I think, <laughs> I, I think that we, you know, there are lots of other ways that AI could help this population. But no, I think to make things smooth and to take that burden off of people and families, you kind of, we would say, need a new professional, someone who is really independent not hired by an insurance company, not hired by government or a hospital, but who is independent and can really be trusted by the family, but who can bill the insurance company or government or the hospital or the family for their services. And that person can then just travel with that affected individual and become expert in them and their needs while also helping them navigate what's out there. We think that's a more ideal interface. We actually call it the by my side model. What is it? The by my side. By my model. side. All right. So an advocate for this for the for for the for the journey. You know, it's funny. My my daughter uh, is about to have her third child, knock wood, but had a doula, a term I did not know. And mm-hmm. I think of I, I now think of a doula as an advocate for. In in her case, her first delivery was very problematic, and the doula was her advocate in the hospital for the entire 27 hours she was there. 
So it sounds like in some ways you're describing an advocacy role that proceeds with the with the person through this through this life journey. Is that where it is? I, I love that analogy. I think that's exactly right. Except, you know, we hope this person can really stay um, with that family for years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the money because you mentioned that. And I know you were uh, formerly with Anthem, a huge insurance company. I don't want you to bite the hand that used to feed you, so to speak. But were there things you saw as an executive at Anthem that were motivational for what you're doing now? So I, I not only worked at Anthem, before Anthem, I was chief innovation officer for Medicare and Medicaid wow. at the federal level. And so I've seen both the public and private sector versions of this. And the reality is there are lots of well-intentioned people, but insurance companies are just like any other healthcare entity. They only know what they know. They only see what they can find in their data. Um, generally, they hold the same values as hospitals and physicians do, which is, you know, let's center on who has the expertise. Let's center on um, how to be efficient. Uh, let's center on things that are scientific. And what we're trying to get them to understand is, well, actually, you'd become more of an expert if you listen to the genius of people's lived experience. You know, you, you'd have more efficiency if, again, you listen to people with lived experience because they often have the answers that you're looking for. We think that that means, you know, we don't know. Does it mean spending more money on services that people with IDD need? Possibly. But spending more money up front could reduce the costs of healthcare later because we know, for example, that people with IDD end up having twice the rate of emergency room visits mm. as people without. Right? They have um, much higher rates of um, preventable accidents and um, medical errors. Wow. Um, and so there is – let's redefine – what expertise and efficiency and quality mean. That's the voice of my Fom. She's our guest today on What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh, with our producer, Tracy Madigan. She is the founder and CEO, president and CEO of the Institute for Exceptional Care. Is there a schism or a big difference between how the federal government talks about this issue and given states do? And if it's their state-level behavior, are some states more cognizant and advanced than others? I think there is great variation in the states. I think all states, um, many people who interact with their state governments who have IDD tend to be people who have more significant needs for supports, right? And um, the states worry about their budget. Many of them lived under balanced budget amendments. But also state governments themselves are strapped for resources. And so it's really challenging to meet the level of need that everyone knows is out there. There's significant unmet need out there for everything from personal aids to vocational support, helping people with job training, getting support for the family members, for respite care. And frankly, the professionals who do that are underpaid. Mm -hmm. They're grossly underpaid and they're, they're often um, you know, not in uh, any kind of career track that would give them a sense of pride and reward. So there's a lot that needs to happen. The people that we could recruit or that your institute or this effort could recruit, you know, I'm, I'm always touched by the stories you hear of young men and women volunteering to be companions and helping out senior citizens that are alone and very, you know, become depressed and life becomes very dark. 
Is there sort of an army, a kind of a crowdsourcing arena that could be helpful in this, or must professional development and training be the the real tip of the spear for how we address these issues? It's so funny that you asked us that question. So this is a long-winded answer. Let's go. We got time. (laughs) I often start a conversation when I'm giving a presentation by asking everyone in the room to think for a minute about your entire network of family, friends, colleagues. And then I dare them, raise your hand if you don't know anyone who is affected by intellectual and or developmental disabilities. And usually you get one or two hands up at most. And that awareness is then opening the door for us to say, there are so many ways you can help. You can participate in our projects where we always have community voices represented. We have a whole initiative called the IDD Advocate Corps that is trying to build an army of insurgents, if you will, from within healthcare. They are healthcare professionals who have other day jobs, right? They, they ha- hold lots of different roles in healthcare. They may be at an insurance company. They may be a hospital executive. They may work in government or be a researcher, but they also have this personal connection to this, con- this set of conditions and this community. And we're partnering them with community members hmm. to help build out an advocacy plan, right? What do we want hospitals to do? What do we want medical associations to do? What do we want insurance companies to do? And then let's do it together. Let's push for that together across our different organizations and sectors. So lots of ways to get involved. So FDR started the Civilian Conservation Corps back uh, to, to help resolve the depression. You have a crowdsourced conference, a, a core to address some of these challenges. So funny you say that about raising the hand. I was thinking if I was in that room, my, my nephew has pretty dramatic Asperger's. But to the point, he was really not handling the reality of living in New York City very well. So he moved mm-hmm. to a remote town in Canada. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of stepping away from the challenge? Uh, I shouldn't say challenge. Stepping away from the the, the back and forth of, of a busy life in a major area. Does that happen to st- IDD folks a lot where they try and go to a quieter or a less aggressive day-to-day? Um, I don't know that it, that one that we can generalize, yeah. but everyone has um, their stressors and things that trigger anxiety for them, things that may trigger sensory issues for them. Yeah. Um, and which was his issue, right? Yeah. Exactly. My my son hates New York City too. Yeah. Um, but but we really this is the crux of what we say to healthcare is every person is different, mm-hmm. and rather than thinking that that's overwhelming, think of it as an opportunity to be flexible in your approach to these patients, and you will discover we tell them that if you can come up with those strategies like, gee, you know, let's be flexible about how we communicate with patients. Some patients may not do well with long verbal conversations. Let's give them an iPad. Mm-hmm. Let's give them, a, you know, some other assistive device. You will discover that those strategies also make healthcare easier for everybody else. There we go. That's the voice of my fam. She's the president and CEO of the Institute for Exceptional Care. We're chatting with her here on What's Working in Washington. When we get back, we're going to talk about how are we asking law enforcement to, to become sociologists when they deal with people with challenges? Maybe so. Those and other issues coming up after this. 
Listen, we want to put out a huge thank you to our listeners who put us in touch with some of the best voices in Washington, D.C. and the region. We've been hearing from you through Twitter, LinkedIn, and other direct messaging. On What's Working in Washington, we talk to power players about innovation in the federal government and how businesses in the region are keeping us competitive. We talk to the brains in the nonprofit world, restaurant domain, and next-gen tech. We love meeting smart people. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, let us know. Tracy Madigan, our producer, and I think that it's all about shining a spotlight on people who are really getting things done in the region. So please keep those ideas coming. Right here in the studio with our guest today, Mai Pham. Mai is the president and CEO of the Institute for Exceptional Care, which I think the name says it all. But tell us what is a typical day or an arc of what IEC would do for its clients, its patients, its partners, and, and, and all that, all the community. Thanks for the question, Mark. So we don't offer direct clinical services, but what we do is we bring together people with these conditions like autism, cerebral palsy, uh, or et cetera, Down syndrome, and we bring them together in the same virtual room with healthcare leaders, people who make the important decisions for hospitals, for insurance companies, for clinics. And we help them build a working relationship so that they can choose the problems they want to work on and then solve those problems together. And I know that sounds super basic, but it's actually very unusual. I was going to say, shockingly, it doesn't happen that much. <laughs> yeah, okay? it's very unusual for a healthcare organization to, frankly, also have the trust of the disability community. There's a ton of mistrust because of so much history of um, abuse and stigma and bias and, um, you know, uh, just a long, long trail of reasons for people in the community to mistrust healthcare leaders. But we've, we seem to have come up with a method for doing this. And, and then what we do is we make sure that those community members get paid. We support them with things like having prep calls with them or pre-recording slideshows to help them process the information, whatever they need so that they feel empowered and on equal footing with the professionals in the room. And then we pivot to the professionals and we role model for them. This is how you share power. This is how you make space. This is, this is what it means to really leverage that genius of the lived experience. Um, and so that, that's kind of a, a very typical day for us. Our projects are varied, but that's the underlying common thread. So I was interested about those with IDD what Hollywood presents them by. And I just saw a movie called Champions with Woody Harrelson. I'm not sure if you've seen that. But he coaches a team of IDD. Does Hollywood do a bad job of making us conscious of these challenges and, these, and, and, and the folks with IDD? Do you think they're getting better at it? Yeah, you know, I think I'm a glass half full kind of gal. Okay. Um, I think that there are still representations of people with disabilities generally that are not quite on point or that perpetuate, uh, you know, unfortunate stereotypes. But I am glad that there is more exposure and more exploration um, of this. You know, I, I, I think back to when um, Will and Grace was a breakthrough show 
about gay people. Right. And um, and we we would see we now see very different portrayals of gay people. So it is an evolution. I would point to um, movies or shows like Crip Camp that I think are real exemplars of um, of portraying people with disabilities as people <laughs> who have full, very complex inner lives, um, and they have their own desires and life goals, and um, and they have their special um, the special things that they can contribute to society, um, and that they have value regardless of what they can contribute. So. It's it's on an up curve, and I appreciate that. But I'm also interested, we were chatting earlier about what IEC is doing as far as tactics and tools and technology or apps to solve another challenge that I think is going on in the U.S., my personal opinion, and that is we're asking people in either law enforcement and other other arenas to be good at something they are not good at, which is assessing the capacity of a person in distress or a person at a high tension environment, whether that person can handle the law enforcement's orders to lie down, whatever they're supposed to do. You hear these tragic stories of a cop not understanding that somebody doesn't is not processing what their orders are and where that's going to go. So what are some of the things you're seeing there? What are some of the tactics and tools you and your colleagues are making? I'm not a, an expert in law enforcement, but I certainly read those media stories. And as a mother, my chest tightens every time um, they come across my view. So we encounter not dissimilar problems in healthcare, right? Um, for example, the emergency room yep. is a terrible place for people with intellectual and or developmental disabilities. It can be incredibly unsafe. Um, the clinicians are harried. They are rushing. They are stressed out. There's, especially since the pandemic, the ERs are always overcrowded and noisy, lots of bright lights. Um, and you end up waiting there for hours and hours, if not days. And so when we engaged with one particular community on Long Island and asked them, how, what do you want to do to solve the emergency department problem? One of the first things they wanted to do was to create a tool, um, think of it as a digital snapshot, that would help a person with IDD and or their family members in those situations. And it turns out that the tool we're going to adapt has been used before with police departments and, and, uh, and other first responders. And what it is is, you know, it's an app that you can download on any device um, that allows that first responder to see things like, here's what I'm like at my best. Click here on this video. And then you see this person is bright and athletic and engaged and verbal. And then it can say, here's what I look like when I'm stressed. And it might explain that. You'd say, here are my anxiety triggers. Here are ways to calm me down. I really like listening to music. Click here for my tunes. And and then it can give clinical information, right? I love but, it. But the, the notion here is that um, there is an extra tool to help that person advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's in their own voice. We're talking with Mai Pham. She is the president and CEO of the Institute for Exceptional Care. One thing that our conversation has elicited, and I, not about me, but I, I'll say this. I was in a very bad car wreck about five years ago oh my. and was in the ER for twenty hours, 18 to 20 hours and with several shift changes. And to, I think to your point about an advocate, it was bizarre to me. And I'm a relatively cognizant patient, right? 
And my spouse, thank God, my lovely bride was out sort of helping me, but she was in the room. People show up knowing nothing about me. Yeah. Um, and this idea of information really transfer from cycle to cycle to cycle, it must be even, as you said, even more dramatic for those who are not able to physically describe what they've been going through and where they are. Absolutely. And, you know, we also have a lot of empathy for the ER teams. My yeah. God, they're being asked to do an impossible job. Crazy. And so we present a solution like this digital snapshot to them as, hey, we want to help you make your workday easier. Right. Right. Help you make safer decisions. Um, help you not have to be a detective <laughs> to right. figure out what's going on with this right. person. Well, because the answers might be different from a patient who's just not used to this the hustle and bustle. Anyway, I, I, I won't I won't belabor it, but I think uh, your the opportunity for your organization seems to be vast, sadly. So um, how are you funded? And, and I, I say we're coming close, so this is sort of a lightning round here, but how, how are okay. you funded? We are, like most nonprofits, we um, – have funding from a combination of foundations, individual donors, uh, a little bit from uh, government and corporations, but mostly it's it's the first two. And how can our listeners find you and maybe even see that app that you talked about? Uh, well, you can visit our website, which is www.ie-care.org. Mm -hmm. And uh, we will be piloting that tool later this year, Got it. but we're happy to share more information about it. Excellent. So, my mom, uh, we ask every one of our guests here on what's working in Washington a final question, which is if you ran the world for some reasonable period of time, what's the thing you would start happening that isn't or a thing you would stop happening uh, that you think shouldn't be happening? What is what is your suggestion? It's big. I apologize. It's really Go big. Go big! <laughs> I really want the political and economic leaders in our country to see that health, not health care, but people's health, is economic currency. Mm -hmm. I wish that they would approach our need for supports for our health as urgently as they would a bank failure or um, a Wall Street crash, because frankly, in our country, it's, it's hard to tell that we are a, a rich, developed nation. We have uh, plateauing life expectancy. We have Americans in the prime years of their life dying younger than they used to. That's a crazy place to be. We have wild inequities in health. And it all, um, it's not, this is not about it, you know, taking a cold-eyed, you know, financial view of this, but it hurts all of us. When our neighbors are unhealthy, it hurts us. It hurts our neighborhoods. It hurts our schools. And I wish that political leaders would understand concretely how those numbers work. From your lips, as they say, my fam, it's been a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on What's Working in Washington. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy? performed by the Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.